Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Tribal courts have a special and powerful place in the justice system. And this year, they were given expanded authority under the Violence Against Women Act to prosecute non-Native offenders charged with sexual violence. Tribal justice leaders say it's an important way to protect their tribal residents at a time when the federal justice system is overwhelmed. We'll hear about the role tribal courts play and the innovative programs they deploy for safety and healing. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Canadian Human Rights Tribunal says that a $40 billion welfare settlement to compensate Native children and families does not satisfy all the requirements of the tribunal's orders. Dan Karpinchuk reports. The tribunal is urging the parties involved in the agreement to continue negotiating despite its decision. Ottawa was ordered by the tribunal three years ago to compensate First Nations children and families after it had ruled they had been discriminated against for years because child welfare services on reserves were not properly funded. The initial deal announced at the beginning of the year would have awarded $40,000 to each child in their families that suffered, but the tribunal is now worried about the timeline for people to opt out and whether all children will get the full amount. Cindy Blackstock is the executive director of the First Nations Child and Caring Society of Canada. It also turned out that some children would see their amount from $40,000 turn to nothing. And those are children who were moved during a child welfare investigation on reserve because their families were denied prevention services. But they may have stayed with a friend's family or whatever. And we, our message to Canada and to the class action lawyers was, make sure you don't leave these people behind. Blackstock says it's not just a handful of children that are affected, but it could be in the thousands. The Assembly of First Nations says the tribunal's decision is devastating. The government has also expressed disappointment in the decision. The original agreement set aside $20 billion for individual compensation and $20 billion for long-term reform of the on-reserve child welfare system. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. The Alaska Federation of Natives, the largest statewide Native organization in Alaska, has endorsed Representative Mary Peltola for Congress. Peltola made history in September, becoming the first Alaska Native person, Yupik, to ever serve in Congress. She spoke before the Alaska Federation of Natives annual convention last week in Anchorage. The Democrat talked about unity and expressed her gratitude to the late Republican Congressman Don Young, whose seat she won in a special election. In an interview with the National Native News, Peltola commented on serving Alaska Native and American Indian people, saying as a member of Congress, it's her job to uphold trust and treaty responsibilities. So often what I've seen is this relationship where an agreement is made and then a generation goes by and institutional knowledge is forgotten of this, of all of the concessions that were made to get to this treaty and then the next generation wants more concessions. And then the next generation wants more concessions from um, Alaska Natives and Native Americans. And I just think it's really important that as we're being approached with more concessions, we all remember collectively this institutional knowledge of the compromises and concessions that were made to get to that initial place and, and not to keep ratcheting it down. 
Peltola is running in the general election to keep her seat. In a press release Wednesday, the AFN stated the Alaska Native community is determined to help elect representatives and partners to achieve further self-determination and legal empowerment as sovereign, self-governing indigenous peoples. The AFN has also endorsed U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski. The Association of Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums Conference is underway in California. Guardians of Culture and Lifeways were honored Wednesday. The Tribal Leader Award was Chief Arvel Looking Horse from the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota. He's the 19th generation keeper of the Sacred White Buffalo Calf Pipe. He founded the World Peace and Prayer Day along with the Bigfoot Riders, which memorializes the massacre of Bigfoot's band at Wounded Knee. In his speech, he called for peace and that everyone is a messenger to protect Mother Earth. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There's no reason to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. That's why AARP created state-specific comprehensive election guides. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Did you know one in 26 people will develop epilepsy during their lifetime? Call 1-800-332-1000 to learn more. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Like all other justice systems, tribal courts seek to hold people accountable and keep order in the community. But sometimes tribal courts are compelled to take on cases that other courts might not. The recent reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act gives tribal courts more power, especially over non-Native perpetrators of sexual violence. That's one victory for tribal courts this year, but there have also been some jurisdictional setbacks. In this hour, we'll check in on the progress tribal courts are making. Are you familiar with your tribal court? Are you concerned about jurisdiction when it comes to the tribal court justice system? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Joining us first from Ann Arbor, Michigan is Matthew Fletcher. He's a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School and author of the Turtle Talk blog. He's from the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. Matthew, always a pleasure. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Go Blue. Matthew, in the past year, there have been both wins and losses for tribal courts. So let's start out with the wins. What gains in sovereignty and other issues have tribal courts enjoyed in recent months and even over the last year or so? Well, uh, definitely you can say that uh, you already mentioned it. The the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act of 2022 extended the number of crimes that uh, tribal courts can prosecute that are perpetrated by non-Indians. Um, you may recall or may not, in 1978, the Supreme Court said that absent congressional authorization, tribes cannot prosecute non-Indians. And a couple of times now, back in 2013 and again in 2022, Congress has uh, listed a, a series of crimes that committed by non-Indians that tribes can now prosecute. And in 2013, it was crimes that related to intimate partner violence. 
And now we've they've, Congress has extended that out to um, human trafficking and child abuse type claims and some other things as well. Um, but as before, when tribes do decide to prosecute non-Indians, they have to provide pretty robust criminal procedure rights to those defendants. And um, as some people have pointed out, a non-Indian being prosecuted in tribal court has better criminal procedure rights than every other person in the United States. Now, are most tribe tribal courts, are they interested in, in prosecuting um, criminal offenses like this? Do they, do, are, do they generally want that increased jurisdiction? Well, I think the just to push back a little bit on the question, it really is a question of tribal leadership. Um, it's expensive to hire uh, and patrol, hire police and patrol a reservation and investigate those crimes. It's expensive to hire prosecutors with experience in prosecuting those crimes. Sexual assault crimes, um, intimate partner violence crimes are very, are kind of unique and difficult to prosecute. Human trafficking and child abuse is also something that requires a special kind of investigative office. Um, and then you have to add in, of course, if you're going to prosecute and convict these individuals um, and put them in jail, then you have to pay for jail. And every state in the union will tell you that the biggest, most expensive thing on their budget is uh, the prison system. And um, But it does come back to tribal courts. Uh, some court tribal court systems still rely on uh, judges who are what we call lay judges. They're not lawyers per se. Uh, Many of them have decades of experience in handling complex cases without ever having the benefit, I guess you could say, of law school. Um, they do great work, but statutes like this sort of shunt lawyers like uh, judges like that off to the side. And um, you have to be a law-trained judge. You have to have a law-trained judge um, and law-trained uh, public defender in order for a tribe to prosecute these kinds of cases. And um, that makes it difficult. Do you know about how many tribal court systems in Indian country have that capacity currently to prosecute criminal offenses? I, you know, I would say it's probably around two or three dozen. Um, I know Umatilla was one of the pilot tribes way back in uh, 2013 and 2014 when Congress first um, enacted the VAWA uh, tribal jurisdictional provisions. But it's a small number of tribes. Um, there's a, probably three or four of them in Michigan here alone, and um, they're really um, not prosecuting as many cases as you would think. Uh, as a general rule of thumb, it's fair to say that outside of a few tribes um, that do have a huge problem with uh, domestic violence, child abuse, that sort of thing, um, most tribes that do have those issues can't afford to um, get themselves certified to prosecute non-Indians. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a huge resource. Uh, intensive process and um, just very difficult. And then there are some tribes that just don't have tribal courts at all. For whatever reason, they don't have the capacity to have any type of tribal court. Do you know about how many tribes there are that just that don't have tribal courts and just rely on other courts to handle all types of legal issues that, that are presented towards the tribe? That's a good question. I don't know the exact numbers, but my guess is in California alone, there's probably 50 or more tribes that have no court system. These are courts that have very limited land base um, or tribes that have very limited land base uh, or very small numbers of, of uh, tribal members. So they're and, and in California, the state court system is open to handling those cases. So there's no for, for many of these tribes, they don't feel real pressure to open up. 
Alaska is another state where there are uh, dozens of tribes that do not have uh, tribal court systems yet. Um, Alaska, is, as you might or might not know, has been sort of persecuted by the state government and to some extent by the federal government um, over the last half century, really, if not longer, um, denying them funding for tribal justice systems and things like that. And so that's sort of turned around on the federal end, and, but it's still really difficult. Both of these, uh, you know, I would say it's fair to say between 125 and 150 tribes do not have a justice system. And probably another 100 or 200 tribes are really just getting started with their justice system. So it's... Um, it's a it's a law it's it's improving you know when i started teaching in the 90s it, there were probably only about 250 travel courts mm, interesting yeah so definitely some progress being made well let's talk uh, about some of the setbacks we started with the wins and let's, uh, let's look at some of the challenges or setbacks that are impacting travel courts uh anything recent that we need to really be paying attention to right now well the the best thing that's happened really in the last half century is tribal self-determination where the federal government has uh, appropriates money to tribes, and tribes have the option to enter into annual funding agreements under Public Law 638. And that's given tribes, most tribes, again, I mentioned California, Alaska, it's given tribes a lot of opportunity um, to develop their, their, their court systems. But the real pushback on court systems doesn't come really from Congress so much, or even the Department of the Interior. It tends to come from the federal judiciary, most notably the Supreme Court. So I mentioned in 1978, the court took away the ability of tribes to prosecute non-Indians. And around that same time, they severely restricted the ability of tribes to uh, not prosecute non, non-Indians, but to, to regulate them, meaning you know, maybe to give a civil ticket or to enforce environmental regulations or land use regulations on them, simple basic governance type of things. Um, and that's turned around quite a bit in the last five or ten years or so. And uh, the Supreme Court for the first time ever held in a case about three years ago, United States versus Cooley, that tribes had the ability to hold and detain um, non-Indians who are in the act of committing a crime on the reservation. They can't prosecute them, but they can detain them, and that's really important. Um, So there's, uh, in in the West, for the most part, uh, what we call the Ninth Circuit, which is the West Coast, Montana, Nevada, Arizona, and also in what we call the Tenth Circuit, which is another federal appellate court, and that's New Mexico, Oklahoma for the most part, Colorado. If you're a tribal court in one of those states, um, it's likely the federal court is going to be supportive of your exercise of jurisdiction over non-Indians, non-members. But if you're in the Eighth Circuit, and that's the Dakotas, Minnesota, Iowa, you're going to get the exact opposite treatment. Those tribes, those tribal courts never win any cases in the federal courts on their uh, ability to, to prosecute non-Indians. And it's a real unfortunate split. And um, the Supreme Court is not interested and probably not really competent even to resolve that split. So whether a tribe has is going to have a successful ability to, to regulate non-Indians, non-members, is it's weirdly based on where you're located. Mm. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it really is interesting to hear. And let's talk more about the Supreme Court, because Neil Gorsuch, uh, Justice Gorsuch, has been a friend to Indian law interpretations on the Supreme Court in many cases. And Matthew, is that a surprise to you at all? <laughs> you know, um, 
uh, you know, and National Congress of American Indians and Native American Rights Fund strongly supported him when he was nominated. And I had, I would have to say, I at the time I quietly wondered what were they thinking. Um, but they had, they had something, and um, it doesn't surprise me now at all. He is very clear on his judicial philosophy, which is he's a textualist. And what that means is he looks at the black letter of the law, the four corners of a piece of paper, and is, uh, ostensibly his methodology is he's not going to look at what is best for the world, only what the law says. And as any Indian law professor or practitioner can tell you, the law generally, on paper, generally favors tribal interests. So um, textualists, even politically conservative ones like Justice Gorsuch, should be friends to tribal interests. Um, and, you know, he's been very faithful to his textualism, and as a result, tribal interests have benefited. Uh, so at this point, I'm no longer surprised, although um, I was at the beginning of his uh, of his tenure as a Supreme Court justice. I'm pleasantly surprised on, on his uh, <laughs> voting pattern in Indian law. Well, folks, we are speaking now with Matthew Fletcher. He's up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's a law professor there at U of M Law School, author of the Turtle Talk blog. We're learning about tribal court systems, recent wins with regard to tribal courts and sovereignty, and also some setbacks they're facing there uh, on the federal level, uh, issues with the Supreme Court, and other various impacts uh, facing our tribal court systems throughout Native America. So, folks, if you want to get in on this conversation, what are you waiting for? Please, please give us a call. Our phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. It's spooky season, and it's a good time to learn about the indigenous origins of chocolate. That's one item on the menu, our regular Native food show on Native America Calling. We'll also talk with this year's National Indian Taco Champion and the owner of Italiti, a brand new plant-based restaurant in Albuquerque. Local tribal museums are the experts of indigenous histories, cultures, and values with the tools to educate the public. On the first National Tribal Museums Day, on December 3rd, participating museums will offer no-cost admission, special exhibits, and live cultural demonstrations. Learn more at indian-affairs.org slash Tribal Museums Day. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this program. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on tribal courts today. Do you have questions about tribal court jurisdiction? We'd love to hear them. Our number, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And let's go to the phone lines now. We have Kenneth. He's listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Kenneth, thank you for calling in today. You are on Native America Calling. Uh, thank you. I'm a non-Indian attorney. I represent a tribal social services program in, uh, regarding children in both tribal court and state courts all across the country under ICWA. And I have to say the attention that families and children get in uh, the tribe that I work for in our 
tribal court is so much better and so much healing, more healing, and there's so much more time and attention and supports than what I see in uh, state courts, that it is a huge benefit when tribal courts have the resources to provide that kind of time and attention and social services has the supports Mm -hmm. for families to keep families together. And it's so much better than the state system. Um, And it's even more better than uh, in some states than others. Okay. Kenneth, Uh, um, so I just want to ask you, why do you think that is? What do you attribute uh, those better outcomes and and that better, more attention to detail with those tribal courts as opposed to these outside courts? Well, part of it is just that they're not relying on the adversarial system and there aren't so many people fighting. Instead, it's much more in accord with tribal values to come together and figure out what's best for the family. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. So this is, uh, you're talking about ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. And what about any other cases, any other issues that you deal with with tribal courts that you see as well, just better outcomes and, and a better ability to handle some of these issues? Well, I think that the uh, this is probably one of the few instances in our legal system where Indian children, if there's ICWA jurisdiction, get better and more attention in state courts than non-Indian children now. Um, and it's why the uh, it's so important that ICWA be upheld. Uh, New Mexico has passed its own ICWA, as have other states. Um, because they recognize that uh, ICWA is the best way to make sure Indian children and families get the attention they need. But even that is better in tribal courts. Um, So, you know, state courts are overwhelmed. The tribal courts I've been in have the time and attention to give to families that, that need it and deserve it. Kenneth, thank you for calling in today. And Matthew Fletcher, I'd like you to respond to that. Would you agree that uh, across Native America, we tend to see uh, better outcomes with regard to ICWA cases and other various cases impacting youth and families from tribal courts as opposed to outside courts? Absolutely, that's the case. Um, You know, state court systems, I think there are 22 State court systems currently under federal court order or subject to a class action lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of their foster care system as being abusive um, and and completely wasteful. Um, Foster care is not a great thing, and states spend a lot of time routing people, little kids, into foster care when they don't necessarily have to. Um, They take kids out of their communities, and tribes do the exact opposite. They do everything they can. Um, to keep uh, tribal members, tribal member children with their biological relatives. And um, so there's absolutely no doubt that the caller is correct. Uh, We've seen it in Michigan where we used to, back in the day, send students to watch um, in Detroit, Michigan, Wayne County uh, family court cases involving Indian children. They're basically ICWA cases. And um, those hearings, uh, are like, like the caller said, are adversarial. The um, the state, the uh, um, foster care, excuse me, the, the state's attorney, the children's attorney, the parent's attorney, and the judge um, rarely uh, meet 
Um, they have court hearings that last for just a few minutes, and really it's the judge, often it's a non-law trained judge, just basically saying, how's everything going? And uh, everybody's saying, moving on. There's, there's really no um, effort in state courts uh, meaningfully to reunite families with uh, families who've lost their kids with their children. Um, that's the ostensible goal, but it doesn't happen. And tribes have a radically different um, perspective. And the tribes that do have the resources actually expend those resources mm-hmm. on the preservation of Indian families. Well, that's, um, there's, okay. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm just, you know, but regarding resources, I mean, and, and how much support, because that's one thing that the, Kenneth, the caller Kenneth mentioned, is that not all of these tribal courts, you know, you know have the, the resources to 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 take these cases and, and follow through with them to the degree that they need to, especially with ICWA. So um, is there strong support going forward to, to give court, these tribal courts, that increased capacity and the resources and the tools and the funding and everything they need to continue serving uh, their communities with regard to these ICWA cases? Well, a couple points. One is, I think across the board, you can say that tribes dedicate more resources um, as a, as a function of the percentage of their budget than any state does on a, on a huge order of magnitude. Um, but you're right. There are a lot of tribes that have extremely small budgets and very limited capacity to do um, the, the work they want to do. But even tribes that don't have resources, and they tend to be able to provide services um, as so long as the child is close by, um, even if they don't transfer the case into tribal court, the tribe is still there as, um, as a legal party to the case to lean on the state and lean on the state court to, com- to, to comply with the Indian Child Welfare Act. Sometimes just showing up and being there is enough to uh, m- you know, make the state court comply. And there are lots of things in ICWA that, um, as the caller said, are, are beneficial to uh, Indian families and Indian children. And the tribes can do that even with little or no resources. They just have to show up. They can, it's, it's legal under ICWA, it has been forever, to just make participate in a hearing even across the country by the phone. Um, Now you have Zoom, so it's really easy, but uh, that's really important. And so even tribes that have very little resources can make a huge impact um, on those cases, even if those cases don't go to tribal court. Let's go back to the phones now. We have Carol listening online in Wyoming. Carol, thank you for calling. What's on your mind? I don't think we have Carol on the line yet, so we'll go ahead and hold off on Hello? Carol. Yeah, Carol. <laughs> Hi, Carol. I'm sorry, How are you doing? I muted while oh, I was listening to no. Dr. Fletcher. <laughs> um, Oops, I think we lost Carol for good there. So sorry about that, folks. So, uh, Matthew, so, you know, so much going on here with our tribal courts. And um, you talked a little bit earlier about you know, the challenges facing some of these tribal courts. And, uh, and again, not every Native community has a tribal court. And about how long does it take for a community to, to build a tribal court system that's pretty robust? And, and what all goes into that in terms of resources and uh, other, other capacity building measures that they need to establish to get a solid court system in order? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, Michigan is a really good place to start looking for answers. Um, I, I've been affili- I'm affiliated right now. I'm on the Court of Appeals for a tribe called the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians, which is an ancient tribe, but only federally uh, reaffirmed in 1994. And their uh, reaffirmation statute says that they have exclusive jurisdiction over Indian child welfare cases um, as of the time of the passage of the statute, but they didn't have a tribal court yet. 
And that was the tribe's first, the tribal council, the leadership's first um, interest is getting the tribal court set so that they can start accepting Indian child welfare cases. But it took a good five or ten years for the tribe to retain um, staff and a, a judiciary that um, could set a lot of this stuff up. The tribe has to start from scratch. The tribal council has to adopt a child welfare code. Um, and they really should think carefully about the choices they make in a child welfare code. It takes time, uh, at least a year or two, to really uh, get to the community, figure out what a child welfare code should look like, what the tribe and its community really, what matters to the community. Um, and meanwhile, the tribal court is setting up court rules. It's establishing relationships with local attorneys, local agencies, um, probation officers. Uh, those, those relationships take time. Uh, the tribe and the tribal court can also try to establish some sort of um, court rule with the state um, in order to, to allow for the enforcement of judgments. So if the tribe adopts, a, you know, issues a child support order or personal protection order, the state should comply with that, and there should be procedures for uh, putting that all together. It really does take a solid decade, even for a tribe with significant resources, um, to start from scratch on a tribal court system and, and get it up and running in a way that's functioning. You do little bits and pieces at a time, um, but really to, to have the capacity that Pokagon Band had, has now, and it's gotten better since then, but really it took probably 10 years before it could really um, get, out, get off of its, uh, get, you know, get out and running and do these things. Okay, 10 years, 10 years solid. Let's go back to Carol. We've got her on the line again. Carol, hello. And again, I, my apologies. We had a power bump, uh, every, and I lost power. So, uh, thank you. This is a very important topic, and I agree with everything that I've heard from Mat Matthew Fletcher today. Um, I'm a retired tribal prosecutor from the Wind River Indian Reservation, um, and concurrent prosecution. I wanted to speak to this. In the 1990s, the tribal court was under the direction of John Sinclair, who had written a tribal code also, and using federal rules of evidence. We concurrently prosecuted all federal crime within the tribal court. Uh, it's a court of general jurisdiction, and we could do that. Once we made those arrangements, and this was with a BIA police law enforcement presence. Okay. This was with FBI. This was with the United States Attorney's Office. Carol, I'm sorry, just real quick. Can you clarify what tribe are we speaking? Where were you a tribal prosecutor again? Wind River Indian Reservation, Thank Wyoming. You. Thank you. Uh, Eastern Shoshone Tribe, Northern Arapaho Tribe. I was a uh, prosecutor in the 90s and came back in the mid-2000s. By the mid-2000s, uh, when I came back part-time, uh, some of this had broken down primarily because the concurrent investigation of crime broke down due to new federal uh, restrictions or rules within FBI and BIA, and those continue today. But the issue is that tribes have that sovereignty, can set this up. Tribal courts are restorative. They are culturally appropriate. So even when we go by the Western rules, and yes, I'm a graduate of University of Denver College of Law, even when we go by those rules, the sentencing options can be greater. Also, I did the civil and the criminal cases. You cannot separate those types of things well on 
um, in any court, but especially in tribal courts, because they're the same families. And if tribal prosecutors do not have the criminal investigation uh, information, going into those civil cases can be extremely difficult. So I just am calling to say, please, tribal courts are great. They really are. They, they, however, need to be tribal courts and exert the sovereignty for that concurrent prosecution. And I've been beating this drum since the 90s, so thank you for listening. Well, Carol, thank you for calling in with all of those insights. Again, that is Carol listening online in Wyoming. She's a retired tribal prosecutor for Wind River. And Carol mentioned uh, restorative restorative justice. And let's bring in another guest. Uh, Joining us now from Pendleton, Oregon, is Matt Johnson. He's the court director of the Umatilla Tribal Court, and uh, he is an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Matt, welcome to the uh, Native America Calling. It's great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Well, Matt, our our caller there, Carol, mentioned restorative justice, and I know that is something that is definitely very much uh, at work there within the Umatilla court system. Tell us, what promise does restorative justice have there among the Umatilla? Well, it's definitely a focus of our court, and and, yes, as has been discussed on on this uh, topic already today, you know, we really strive to uh, make sure that all of uh, the people who appear in our court are are treated with with the utmost respect and and recognized as the community members that they are. They're they're our family and friends and and people that that we know. So we're we're our our, our ju- judges, our justice system is is really aimed at at um, remembering that and and doing everything we can to rehabilitate people and and provide them with the the services they need to to uh, uh, become successful and and uh, uh, turn their lives around if they need to. Matt, can you give us a glimpse into what Umatilla courts deal with on a daily basis? Sure. We have hearings regularly scheduled Monday through Thursday. Um, we have uh, a number of uh, different topics that we cover. They could range from um, child support, um, housing evictions, traffic. Um, there are criminal matters such as you know some, some crimes, violent crimes at times, uh, as well as uh, juvenile hearings. So uh, really, a range of topics. It just varies from from day to day. Um, although we have, you know, we have set set times for for uh, the, the different kinds of topics. Particularly, uh, juvenile hearings are closed, so we um, we we maintain a lot of confidentiality over those. But um, yeah, just a range of topics, and and uh, yeah, uh, criminal, civil, um, really across the board. We we exercise as much jurisdiction as we can, and and uh, uh, strive to to. Uh, really exercise the sovereignty that the tribe has inherent in its existence. Now, those criminal matters earlier, we heard Matthew Fletcher mention um, you know, more more tribes are, are taking on uh, a more proactive role with regard to prosecuting criminal offenses. And is that something that Umatilla is interested, prosecuting more criminal offenses in the future? Well, uh, we, you know, we, we will prosecutor our prosecutor decides what he wants to to charge and you know i think we we will consider whatever cases are are, are brought or whatever is is brought to us by uh law enforcement you know i think one of the big issues we face is as a uh, professor uh, fletcher touched on a little bit is you know just um and the um uh, 
availability or the you know the capacity of law enforcement to to um, uh, recognize or, or capture crimes when when they're happening or criminals when when activity is taking place. So um, you know it's it's I, I wouldn't say we're we're looking to exercise greater jurisdiction. We we just we have the jurisdiction that we have and we're we're willing to to um, you know consider whatever is brought to us. Mm-hmm. We're speaking now with Matt Johnson, and he's up in Pendleton, Oregon. He's the court director for the Umatilla Tribal Court, and he's uh, sharing with us a little bit of what those folks deal with on a daily basis. Also on our show today is Matthew Fletcher. Again, he is at the University of Michigan Law School, and we're having a really, really insightful conversation today, learning all about tribal courts and some of the challenges that face tribal courts and some big wins recently with regard to how tribal courts are able to support tribal sovereignty. So anybody with a question or a comment, if you have any information that you want to share with regard to tribal courts in your community, what are you waiting for? Please give us a call right Right now, we've got our producers standing by. We're waiting for you to call 1-800-996-2848. Close to half of American adults have high blood pressure. Of those, about 75% don't have it controlled. Singer, songwriter, and actor Natori Naughton is teaming up with the support of the American Heart Association to raise awareness of high blood pressure. You can join us in the Get Down With Your Blood Pressure Dance Movement. It's inspired by the four simple steps to self-monitoring blood pressure. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Info about the dance at American underscore heart on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about tribal courts today, and there is still time to join our conversation. How do tribal courts work in your community? How do they keep the community safe? What do you think tribal courts do well? Where do you think tribal courts can improve? Our number, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we've got Matt Johnson on the show right now talking with us from Pendleton, Oregon. He's the court director for the Umatilla Tribal Court. And Matt, earlier we were talking about some of the challenges uh, that are impacting tribal courts. And other than more funding, what do you think would make Umatilla courts more effective? And, and what types of challenges are you folks currently facing? I would say one of the biggest challenges that we're facing is is really um, um, Encouraging or, or accessing attorneys who who want to practice in our court. I mean, we we have uh, two public defenders currently that that represent people, but uh, you know we would like to have a, a greater amount of of attorneys who are um, willing and able to to practice in our court. So you know we are um, fairly um, remote, or you know we're in a rural location. We're you know we're obviously connected everywhere by all kinds of means and, and located um, you know in northeastern Oregon. Uh, just off of uh, major freeways, but um, yeah, people who who want to come out here and, and practice um, are, are are it's it's a fairly small number, and we could we could definitely use more attorneys and um, um, judges as well. We're you know we're working now to to develop our appellate court system, and and um, you know our, it, it's just there's a limited um, number of attorneys um, again in our court and and on our, our bench as well. All righty. Well, let's go to the phones again. We have Steve listening in Winslow, Arizona on KUYI. Steve, thanks for calling in today. Hey, how you guys doing? 
Doing well. What's on your mind, Steve? Well, uh, this is a kind of a little bit off the subject, I guess you might say. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, you got some guys with uh, law degrees and all that, but um, how or why is it that we tribal members cannot sue our own tribes uh, for their neglect, you know, to their own people? on different housing issues, you know, uh, following up on their kids' alcoholism and all stuff, you know. Why is it, how is it, or where does that originate from? Okay, all right. Steve, that's a really good question. I'm going to go ahead and let Matthew Fletcher respond to that. Matthew, Steve's question revolves around why can't tribal members sue tribes? And I'm thinking perhaps it has something to do with sovereign immunity. Matthew, what's your thought? Yeah, it sure does. So, you know, tribal communities have adopted constitutions that sort of uh, mimic or mirror uh, state and federal constitutional law and structure. And so um, there is a principle that the Americans brought over from Europe, from England, which is that the the king can do no wrong. Um, And that's what a sovereign is. And so every tribal community has to make a choice for itself as to whether it is going to be accountable in a court proceeding to its uh, tribal members. So there are tribes here in Michigan and around the country that have enacted statutes called limited waivers of sovereign immunity for the purpose of allowing certain kinds of lawsuits. Sometimes those are civil lawsuits uh, to enforce civil rights statutes or um, suits for money damages in the event that somebody like uh, is, does a slip and fall at, at the tribal casino or something like that. But, you know, you can have a really strong court system, but, um, you know, if it doesn't have the capacity to render a judgment against the tribal government in some of these more complex issues, that's that's a real problem. It sort of guts the ability of the tribe, uh, the tribal judiciary, to serve as an impartial arbiter between parties. So um, as a you know, as a policy matter, not a lawyer, it makes it, it makes sense to me for tribes to open up their court systems to resolve these disputes. There are still a lot of tribes, however, that really don't have the resources to defend those cases or to pay out money money damages. You know, my own tribe, the Grand Traverse Band, was federally acknowledged in 1980. It was probably 10 years before we um, could balance our budget even a little bit. Um, but that said tribes in order to operate governmental programs through the federal contracting process or to have casino operations or any kind of economic development operations have insurance. So um, there, there are, there is some place, some options for um, persons that think they have been aggrieved by the tribal government, but I am in complete agreement that tribes far too often um, stand behind the law, the, the law of sovereign immunity to avoid um, being accountable. Okay, well, that's a great answer for a great question from Steve, who was listening in Winslow, Arizona. Let's go to the phones again. We have Nicole now listening in Gallup, New Mexico on KGLP. Nicole, hello. Thank you for calling in today. Good morning, Sean and the panel. Thank you so much for uh, all your education us to be able to help us natives. And Stephen, thank you so much for being engaged politically because you, you're very important. Uh, to the Hopi people. And for myself, for the Navajo people, that's exactly what my concern is. 
I was, I'm asking our council delegates for the Navajo Nation. I currently have a lawsuit for a civil lawsuit against the the Navajo Nation president, uh, Jonathan Nez, because he does not follow policy from the top all the way down to the bottom, which means the local government, which means the, the local chapters. They do not follow their own policy. So that's coming up in December, and I expect some justice to be served to the elder, elderly that are involved in this. But I am really extra concerned about how to waive this sovereignty immunity because with this COVID going on, with the billions and billions of dollars that they have been receiving from the federal government, they didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. They were given it, that money to them because of COVID. So now I'm just wondering, I told, I've been talking to some several council okay. delegates. They told me to start a resolution at the 110 chapters in our Navajo Nation because we need to have some kind of, uh, what do you call it, a uh, ballot thing, a referendum to get our tribal government investigated. So I would like to know how we can we help our people. We need to have an external, internal investigation. Okay. About- All right. Okay. All right. Thank you, Nicole, for, for calling in with that and, and questions about um, investigating tribal leadership. And, and Matthew, if you could briefly respond to that. I, I mean, you know, again, um, like you, you're talking about sovereign immunity and, and holding tribes to task on some of these issues. Uh, are you familiar with any cases in the past where, where tribal members have been, invoked civil lawsuits and investigations with regard to decisions made by tribal leaders? Well, you know, there's, uh, you, you really have to start with the political process. Um, voting matters, uh, elections matter, and um, I really do think that there have been grassroots movements within tribal communities to open up the courthouse doors or other forms of political accountability. Um, you know, tribes were never really, um, the, customarily and historically, were not run by just one person, you know, like a president or a king. They were, uh, their power was diffused around a, a bunch of different groups, and people would come into prominence over a short period of time. And uh, one of the things about having a written constitution and regular elections um, is that we lost a lot of that. So I really think that tribal communities should edu- educate themselves about um, how they used to govern themselves and how to try to bring back some of those traditions. Okay. Because these things happen around Indian country, and this uh, caller's story is not unique. Um, it happens in a lot of places. I'd like for Matt Johnson to chime in as well. Matt, there uh, with uh, Umatilla, do you do you have experience with regard to uh, holding tribal leaders accountable there through your tribal courts? Is that an issue that ever comes up? You know, I I, I don't recall anything off the top of my head. I you know I, I as I think. For, Professor Fletcher made an important point, which is that elections do matter, and we hold our elections every two years, and that's for our entire slate of nine elected officials. So we have, you know, in the recent past, had a fair amount of turnover, and I think that speaks to, you know, people being being held accountable. Um, we do have uh, some limited waivers of sovereign immunity that allow for people to uh, uh, bring certain kind of cases against um, uh, 
officials or against the tribal government if if um, if, if that's necessary. But um, I have not seen that in the in the recent past. Matt, let's go back uh, to VAWA earlier this year, the, the reauthorization, and there with your Umatilla courts. Have um, they been able to exercise increased sovereignty since the VAWA reauthorization? Since the, the most recent VAWA amendments or the st- uh, statute? No, we have not had any cases brought under the new statute yet, but we have exercised the authority under uh, the previous VAWA, VAWA uh, 2014, I believe it was, when our first uh, uh, case came through 2013, 2014 in there. Um, so we have, have exercised jurisdiction over uh, non-Indians, and it's not something that uh, we have to do a lot, but we have um, had a number of individuals um, who have been charged and, and have been um, convicted uh, under under the, the previous VAWA provisions. I Anticipate in the future, you know, we will will have some uh, additional cases with the the greater authority that's provided for for um, uh, uh, different family violence or or uh, cases related to children that that could could come forward, but uh, that hasn't happened yet. Now, Matt, I, as I understand it, there's it's a large focus there with the Umatilla court system on rehabilitation. Can you talk about that? Sure, and you know we we do um, have a probation that we uh, have for a number of offenders, and uh, you know we'll we'll offer them a, a number of chances, especially for nonviolent offenders, to uh, obtain the services they need, whether it's uh, alcohol and drug treatment, mental or behavioral health. Uh, you know, those services are are, are things that. Oh, it would be would be great if there were more providers and and more resources. So you know, sometimes it can take time and and some some patience by the judges to uh, allow people to find the services that they need. So uh, we you know we we have regular probation check-ins every week for for people that are on probation, and uh, oftentimes their um, uh, jail sentences will be suspended um, while they're pursuing. Um, the the help or the treatment that they need for for whatever issues they might have. So, I would say that's that's really the biggest area uh, where we we really try to uh, focus on people getting well and, and getting the help they need is is through our probation services. We've got time for one more caller. We have Morris. He is listening on KYUK in Nunapichuk, Alaska. Morris, thank you for calling in. Yes, good morning. Uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity. Um, uh, can can you can they push uh, uh, the Alaska tribes? Uh, there is uh, over 200 uh, tribes uh, here in Alaska. Can uh, and uh, tribal courts are hardly ever heard uh, around here. Uh, can they push? Uh, can they push the uh, Alaska? tribes uh, to start uh, uh, their uh, tribal courts, uh, to start using their tribal courts uh, in their communities. Okay, Morris, thank you for calling in. I'm going to go ahead and let Matthew respond. Matthew, I know you talked a little bit about earlier in the show about some of the challenges there facing uh, tribal court systems in Alaska. Can you respond to, to Morris's question? I can try. I mean, I know that in the past 10 to 20 years, the federal government has finally opened up some opportunities to fund tribal courts in Alaska. Um, so it's a brand new thing. And I know that many tribes, not all, are 
really gung-ho on developing their court system. Primarily what they're interested in is Indian child welfare cases. Um, that's one thing the state of Alaska admits uh, tribes have jurisdiction over, so they've been focusing on that for the most part. And uh, further on down the road, um, and I don't know when that will be, more and more tribes will probably start exercising misdemeanor criminal jurisdiction, but that is going to be um, hotly contested, to say the least. But um, I would say this, that it's probably true that in, in most of Alaska right now, your tribal courts do not have much of a presence, but they are definitely working at it. All righty. Well, Matt Johnson, court director of the Umatilla Tribal Court, I'd like to, we're about out of time for the show, but I, I'd like to give you the last word. And, and what I'd like to ask you about is, um, you know, as I understand it, you're constantly working to improve your court system. And are you able to look at some of these other tribal courts throughout Native America and learn from them and take some of those those lessons and apply them there to your system in Umatilla? We are, yeah. We're. I'm. I'm always looking. We're always looking to to try and improve our system and and continue to develop it. And you know, I think looking, you know, looking at the the history of of our court and our government, uh, you know, we've we've been in existence and have been in this area for over fifteen thousand years uh, by some some accounts. But uh, our modern or contemporary government's only been in place since nineteen forty nine. So definitely, we're. A young government, we're growing a lot, and we're always looking for for ways to improve. So, uh, you know, courts or tribes are are so differently situated as we've we've kind of heard about today, from Alaska to California to uh, you know really large tribes in in the Southwest. So, uh, you know, we're we're a small tribe of 3,100 people. We have a land base that's approximately 270 square miles. So, you know, we we um, try to take lessons from from all different uh, kinds of tribes, but uh, you know, especially those that that are, are situated um, somewhat similarly to us in the in the Northwest or in the Western U.S. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely um, a learning process for me, and and uh, yeah, a, a growth process for for our tribe over the last few decades, and and um, just always trying to to uh, uh, make sure that we're holding people accountable and and administering justice in a in a fair way for for the community. I'd like to say thank you to our guests today, Matthew Fletcher and Matt Johnson, for an engrossing conversation on tribal courts and their impact within Native communities. Join us again tomorrow for The Menu with Andy Murphy. It's our regular Native food news show. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a great rest of your week. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Domestic violence is not traditional. Contact your local Indian health care provider calling 1-800-318-2596 or visit www.healthcare.gov-setlist-number-domestic-abuse to learn more about enrollment period available for survivors of domestic abuse, violence, or spouse tenure. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.